Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Nash. In this episode, I talk with Brendan O'Connor, a security researcher, lawyer, but not your lawyer, and owner of security consulting firm Malice Afterthought. We discuss creating a culture that celebrates collaborative teamwork over harried heroes, how monitoring and checklists really can save lives, and breaking out of the security monoculture. Enjoy the episode. Okay. Hi, Brendan. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. I'm really glad you could make it. Glad to join you. So we are going to talk today about how people perceive other people to a certain degree, how people talk about other people. Um, and all of this in the context of the work you do on a day-to-day basis in security. So what what triggered... we? You and I have been talking about this recently. So what, what triggered your recent uh, thoughts on this particular topic? I want to hear from you uh, what what prompted some of the email thread you and I have had back and forth recently. Sure. So a, a few weeks ago, a old meme from a few years ago kind of resurfaced on the internet. And it's a Reddit post that I'm sure most of your listeners have seen before. It's a sysadmin saying... Can you people help me? My PCI auditor seems to have lost his mind. He's asking for all this information, and a lot of it is bad in different ways. But in particular, he's asking for and demanding, you know, and saying he'll fail us and we won't be able to take credit cards unless we give him a list of all plain text passwords for the entire organization. And this is, of course, clearly insane, right? Um, and the people in, on Reddit conveniently say this is clearly insane. And eventually, this gets pushed back up, and the Uh, auditors removed from the gig is kind of how the story ends. And every now and again, this comes up onto my, I I have a very security focused list of people I follow on Twitter. And every now and again, it comes up and people say, aha, look how dumb these silly compliance people are. See, this is why compliance is useless. And you should only ever talk to people who only do red teaming, because after all, red teaming is the one true way of information security. Of course, right? Because And of course, those people, those auditors and PCI people, they get up every morning just to go out and be dumb and make people miserable, right? That is certainly what I do, right? So I, I'm not, I don't actually work as an auditor, but I do work in compliance. And certainly I try to get up every morning and, you know, have, have, a, have a small sandwich and then go be dumb for the rest of my day. That's, that's what I do. That's what I like. <laughs> I, and so I'm a little bit biased, right? I'm a little bit biased because I work in compliance to think that compliance isn't useless, right? But this thing just gets me because people are saying essentially, well, look, this one auditor was dumb. And to be clear, not defending the one auditor, that was problematic. But therefore, all auditors are dumb. Right. So which which is, is a, it's a pretty bad logical fallacy, right? Right. We, we all should know better and strive to We're, maybe do better. Well, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't even work in statistics, right? Generalizing right. from one to all is uh, problematic. But it's it's worse than that, I think, because it reflects a problem I see across the entire information security community. And that's what kind of gets me and brought me back to the thread we were having in email. So, I mean, there's a lot of ways we could go at this, right? And I mean, one could easily start throwing around words like empathy or, um, you know, context insensitivity, I think is something you had in our uh, in our email thread. But I... I, I Tell me a little bit more like the other side of this is it's not entirely unreasonable for people who have to deal with compliance and auditing all day to feel sort of horrible about it as well, right? Like, how did we get here? And that's certainly true, right? So I actually took a company, um, and this company has been around for 20 or 30 years. They're a very well-established company. But until recently, they'd never had a major 
external compliance. And for, you know, businessy reasons, we, you know, we're trying to acquire a certain type of customer with our certain type of product. And this customer requires, in this case, a SOC 2 audit, which is a audit against a compliance standard called SSA 16. And it's, it's kind of a weird standard, actually. It's a information security standard modeled on financial auditing standards. So already we're like, well, oh, no, we're way outside the bike box because we're taking information that didn't come from InfoSec. So it must be bad. But so it's odd, right? It's, it's oddly written because it's written by CPAs, in effect, CPAs with information security experience. But it's written in terms of that kind of, you know, how do we do financial controls? How do you know that your chief financial officer isn't stealing all the money? Well, you have two person controls and you have certain checks, right? And you do this. There's this very oddity thing of you have preventative controls and corrective controls and detective controls. And so I took this company from start to finish. I refer to this kind of as a zero to hero gig, right? We're going to start from no compliance, which is unfair, and go to all of the compliance. And to be clear, this company wasn't doing bad things, right? They couldn't have survived the last 20 or 30 years if they were doing bad things. But, well, a reasonable people could disagree that that's actually possible in this country, but uh, sadly true. That's yes. a but different like, podcast. But, but in this case, like exactly right. This isn't exactly. This is not just the fail panel at DefCon, right? <laughs> so this this company wasn't just evil or incompetent or anything. They were they'd been around. They weren't very big, but they were they they serve an important niche in the in the universe. And so I would ask them questions, right? Because I'm I'm an assessor. I'm not an auditor, thankfully. So I'm, I'm here to help fix the problems. So I asked them, you know, for instance, when was your last backup? And they would say two weeks ago. And I'd say, well, how do you know that? And then they'd say, well, hmm, let's call Bob. Hey, Bob, Bob, <laughs> did you do the backup? Bob's like, no, I was out sick. I think it was Gary. So they called Gary and they'd find out that they didn't know how they know things. And sometimes, you know, in the case of the backup, they actually did have the backup from two weeks ago the way they thought they did. But as we went through this process, and it's this very wide compliance standard, right? So there's just a ton of stuff going on. Um, they found out that a lot of the things they thought they knew, they didn't actually know and weren't actually happening, right? Sometimes it's because, well, the person who was responsible for that quit three years ago, and we've never reassigned it, right? And this is kind of a common thing in older companies, right? They just like, these things just don't happen anymore. And so we worked through this process, right? It took somewhere between eight and 12 weeks. And at the end... They got a sheet of paper that says that Acme Corporation is now SOC 2 certified, right? And for this period, and there's there's various highfalutin legal type words around it, but that's basically what it says. And so I was talking with people who do red team every day. And they're like, well, great. You checked a box. Do you feel proud of yourself? Mm-hmm. And it's like, you're missing the point, right? Yeah, they checked a box that says, yep, we're SOC 2 against SSA 16. Life is great. But much more importantly than that, this company now has a process by which they know things, right? They both know why they know things, and they know how to notice when things are no longer getting done. My boss is actually fond of the phrase, like, these things happen in a company like backups because they must, right? It's no longer a thing that somebody does, like Gary does, because it's just Gary's job. But these things happen because there are internal controls in place to make sure that they always do happen. So it is. So compliance becomes very much about the journey rather than the destination. You're, I mean, I was just prompted of something, um, and, and I want to park it to come back to, though, is what you were saying about they didn't know how they know things. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to chase his name down, and I will, when I remember it, as we were talking, I will drop it back in there. But there's a, um, a researcher in, um, and I'm trying to remember exactly where he is in Europe. This is, I'm having a total brain fail right now. Um, but uh, I'm trying to get him to talk at one of the other conferences we have at our rally um, called Velocity, where he talks about work as imagined versus work act- as it's actually executed. 
Um, right. And it's, it is a fascinating sort of area almost of human factors where you, you, a lot of times you start to dig into these things and you realize that people don't even understand how things work, how, how, this, how the systems or the businesses they have do what they do all day long, um, right. which, is, which is vaguely terrifying. And I imagine you probably do run into that quite a bit. Yes. Well, and part of that is there's also, this is a little bit of a tangent, but since you kind of brought it up, um, there's this idea, especially in smaller, newer companies, that they kind of live in an age of heroes, right? Where, yeah. you know, these, these things happen because, you know, Stephanie stayed up for three straight weeks and drank nothing but Red Bull. And at the end of the, this amazing sub part of the product was done, right? And it was fantastic. And this idea that it's it's individual swashbucklers of which of whom the bards will sing stories forever that right. get everything done. And there's some point in a company where you have to move from what I, we refer to as the from the age of heroes, right, where we put build yes. statues of people and put them on plinths to the age of cathedrals, right? And cathedrals are compliance driven operations, right? Setting aside the religion and God issue, they're enormous <laughs> buildings that have tons of people with very different specialties, right? You have your bricklayer, you have your ditch digger, you have your sidewalk builder, you also have your marble person, you have the guy who paints the ceiling, right? I mean, like yeah. all of these different things, and they all have to happen together because these are huge buildings. Well, and you that have people crush everyone, right? You have people who are very concerned about them not killing people. Exactly. Like, right. That's and a thing. All too. of these things have to happen together. And those people don't get statues. Right. But the cool thing, and this is how we try it, because, of course, the problem is well, everybody wants to think they're part of the Age of Heroes. But the cool thing is, at the end of the kind of Age of Cathedrals, you've got a cathedral. And 100 years from now, there's a guy on a horse on a plinth. And no one's really sure why that guy deserved that horse and that plinth. Right. right. I live in Seattle. We have a lot of um, streets that are named for very important people in early in the founding of Seattle who actually did really cool stuff. And no one remembers who those people are. And if you look at a cathedral or you look at a skyscraper, everyone knows what that's for. Right. And everyone knows that a ton of people came together. So it's possible to create a culture that says we do these things and we work with all these different areas. And we have lots of these boxes to check so that they don't kill people. And we build a company worth like carrying on in the future. But there's a there's a there's a certain degree of revulsion against that notion, right? Like, I, I, I well, yeah, but it's 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 bad revulsion, right? Right. So jumping back to compliance, which I think gets into the revulsion. There's there's a ton of great studies that come out in the last five or ten years about washing your hands, and specifically about doctors washing their hands. So doctors, if if you ask a doctor, do you wash your hands before you do procedures? He or she will say yes. Of course, they'll say yes, right? Mm -hmm. They're required to do, there are policies in place that require them to wash their hands. It turns out that if you actually monitor their hand washing, they don't. They <laughs> do sometimes, but they don't do it between every single patient. And there was a study, and I think it's from Hopkins, but I was looking for it earlier today and I can't find it. So let's say it's not from Hopkins, but it's definitely from somewhere that empowered nurses and surgical procedures to stop the operation until every single person in the operation had washed their hands. Like every doctor, the, the anesthesiologist, everybody. Mm -hmm. And they could actually stop it, which was a big power struggle, right? Because ordinarily nurses aren't empowered to stop an operation. It's the lead surgeon. And Nonetheless, they did this, and something amazing happened, which is that hospital-borne infections like MRSA dropped precipitously, right? Um, like, like 90% or something, just unbelievably. And that was amazing, right? Because basically, they had a bunch of little boxes, and they checked the little boxes, and it turned out that it was being able to say, yes, I have seen Dr. So-and-so wash her hands, therefore, we're able to proceed. That was cool. And then a new study just came out in 2016 that said, okay, so... Uh, and I think this one was out of like Santa Clara Hospital, someplace in Silicon Valley. 
where they said, okay, well, a couple of years ago, we did that study. Um, there were a variation on this thing where we empowered people to monitor and to stop procedures. And then we stopped and then came back a year later and saw how often people were washing their hands and it returned to the baseline. Mm-hmm. And nonsocomial infections returned back upward to the baseline as well. So it turns out that this monitoring process is actually important, right? At some point, you actually need somebody to continuously say, eat your peas. And I don't care if you don't think they taste good, but I want this patient not to die. Yeah, you're, you're veering back into very favorite territory of mine, um, which is and so the, the researcher I was thinking of that I couldn't think of because of what you just said finally came back. His name is Stephen Shorrock, um, S-H-O-R-R-O-C-K. I became aware of him through a couple of other fellows, um, David Woods and Richard Cook. Um, Richard Cook is an anesthesiologist by trade and training, now doing research with David Woods at, at um, Ohio State University. They spent decades studying um, patient safety procedures in hospital settings. I don't think they were involved with the hand washing study, but they have been involved in very similar kinds of things. Um and they did a ton of work in aviation research as well. These industries that have incredibly safety critical um, things that happen that involve teams of experts and humans who all have to do these kinds of things to keep things safe and keep people from dying. They've decided that the internet now is the thing they have to understand from this perspective. Um, and, uh, and I, I, and so I think that that notion that we don't have this formality, this sense of we are building buildings that could kill people or hospitals that could save or kill people or airplanes that could kill people is that level of, of maturation about the industry that, that a lot of us are dancing around at this point, right? right? But yes, but it gets this unbelievable pushback. And this is what starts to hurt from the red teamers again, right? Mm -hmm. And to be clear, you know, many of my best friends are red teamers, (laughs) which feels a little bit hollow. But so, you know, we've gone through, we go through these whole processes, right? And this is what I do on this day-to-day basis. One large type of my clients are these long-term major remediation assignments um, and against SOC or against ISO things or whatever. And at the end of it, right, they have this small piece of paper, or sometimes they don't even get, right, like in HIPAA, you never get the piece of paper, you just don't get fined into oblivion by the Department of Health and Human Services. Right. Um, so that's fine. And then the red teamers all have the same response. Well, what good was any of that? Because I can still hack your box in. Mm-hmm. And that, well, like, for one thing, hopefully not, right? Like, <laughs> now we have an operational patch management program, which means that we patch things. But it is true that, you know, the you know, kind of unbelievable, like if one of the best attack researchers on the planet, if she decides to attack this company, she will get in. Absolutely. Because she is the 0.1%. Mm-hmm. Right? But most companies don't get attacked by the 0.1%. They get attacked by the 99%. They get, you know, they click on phishing links, or they, you know, just your standard web scan. Oh, we found an open port. Oh, lol, we SQL injected. Oh, I've destroyed your whole business, right? And this kind of work actually does help defend against this, not because any of the things you do in a client-based program are so revolutionary, right? It's things like patch your box in, right? Or scan your software before it goes into the real world. But it helps catch a lot of the low-level stuff that actually fixes things. So this defends against you know the vast the vast unwashed majority of attacks, right? It does not defend against um, like the Mossad. There was that great paper out of uh, Microsoft Research a few years ago that says if your threat model is the Mossad, no matter yeah. what you kind of do, you're going to get Mossaded on. Good luck with which that. Yes. I like Mossad as a verb, right? Yeah. Um, Oof. But there's this pushback because like, how dare you work on the 99% problem instead of the 0.1% problem? Right. And uh, so. I want to come back. To, I think we might come back to that through this. But what do you think of the recent proposed 
regulation in New York. And it's Which very proposed regulation in New York. I'm okay. sorry. Um, so, so Allison Miller just uh, just tweeted about this, but um, I think it's only New York right now. But it's very much going to be requiring businesses block and tackle stuff. Like you, you know, I'm very compliance oriented. I think a lot of it. And I'm I'm struggling to come up with like the right salient details because I read about it yesterday while I was on I was horribly jet lagged. Um. So, but but I'll 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 give you the the TLDR of that I think, and then I'll pull it up here while we're talking. But it is very much the like eat your peas, and it's and it's and it's it's sort of regulatory in nature. It's like regulating businesses and mandating certain things that they must do that are effectively security and compliance oriented. Um, very specific to New York that that is what's coming out of that. So I don't know the New York one specifically. I know a few months ago there was a real concern because the California State Attorney General said that she was going to hold it as a consumer unprotective practice, essentially right. equivalent to a state version of what the Federal Trade Commission does. Um, if you weren't compliant with uh, this particular set of guidelines called the CIS hardening guidelines, which actually say at the very top of them, please do not use this as a compliance regime <laughs> because they're way too, like there's too much stuff going on and they're deliberately aspirational. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that was concerning, right? You can certainly do legislated mandated compliance in a bad way. I realize it's, it's very common to hate on HIPAA. I don't hate on HIPAA. I think HIPAA is actually, especially now that we have audit guidelines, relatively well written, right? And so you can do it in a relatively good way. And it's, you know, hashtag not all legislatures, right? But you know, it can be done in a way that isn't insane, right? And HIPAA is helpful in that it doesn't just say, don't do bad things. It actually says, here are specific good things you pretty much must do, or you have better need, like, have an explanation for why you're not going to do them. Right. So you can do it well. And yeah, I, I'm sorry, I haven't read the New York one. Um, I couldn't comment on it because my lawyer parts will all be sad if I comment <laughs> too much on a law I haven't actually read. No, it's well, so I just pulled it up. It's uh it's a set of rules from New York's Department of Financial Services, which are scheduled to go into effect in 2018. Um, and so it is actually most it is targeted specifically towards financial services orgs, a lot of which are probably already doing quite a bit of this because otherwise, you know, not in business, I would imagine. Um, but things like encrypting sensitive information and appointing a security chief, like some of them are are, are rather, you know, no, not shocking. Um, but right. they are talking about regulating this now versus just saying it sure would be nice if. Right. But of course, you know, Washington state has for a few years now had a clause in its laws that say if you are PCI compliant, then if you get breached, um, you're not liable, mm -hmm. which is kind of an interesting thing, right? Because that's not what PCI is designed for either. And that's PCI used not to what it's about at all. Contract exactly. It's not what it's about at all. But there's this odd law, right? So again, you can kind of do it badly. You can do it well. Hopefully they'll do it well. But I don't think it's a bad move, right? Because again, it starts to fix the 99% of problems, right? You are still going to get massaged on, but you're probably not going to get, you know, trip over a phishing link and your entire organization is breached, right? Or crypto locker, which in large part is happening to organizations that have no internal controls whatsoever. And then they get owned massively because somebody clicked on a link and it, you know, shuts down a hospital who has to pay $50,000 of Bitcoin ransom to <laughs> unlock the hospital. Like that's uh, a horrible solution. But there's uh, this obnoxious yeah. pushback against it. And I feel like it's because the hacker community is used to thinking in terms of attack, right? Because everyone gets into security. Like very few people got into security, even if they work in compliance, because they're like, you know what I really want to do? I want to build processes that make people safer. What well, they really did is they were young or old 
And they said, you know what I really want to do? I want to wipe that smirk off that person's face. Right. And they downloaded Metasploit and they, you know, popped a box and it was amazing, right? And it felt good. And they started learning, well, you know, what allowed that? And then some people at that point never want to get away from the, I owned that person's box and those are red teamers. And some people want to say, I never want to allow that to happen to my computers and those become blue teamers. And then others of us do other things, right? Well, it's, it's an, it, for me, it's a particularly specific piece of people who got into technology because they thought technology was cool, not because they were thinking about the people on the other end of the other machine. Right. right? And like, that's, in, that's entirely possible. In fact, we should welcome people who have all of these different backgrounds, right? People who got into technology because they just thought it was cool and the lights blinked, which right. is pretty much my story. Right. To <laughs> like neato. And like I, I had things that in you know hindsight I can ret- I can identify as kind of hacker like things. Yeah. Well, you know, why doesn't that do that this way? Well, it doesn't. Okay, well, I wanted to do that. Well, it can't. Well, if I hit a bunch of buttons, maybe it will, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's kind of what three-year-old hackers look like. <laughs> but but I, well, I remember, I remember when I first got exposed to all of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, exposing your own personal bent on these things. I never really gave a shit about the box, or what was in the box or how it worked or how it blinked. I was always like, the minute I realized, I was like, holy crap, there are all these other people out there now that I could reach, not just, I don't have to have a phone or look up their, like, and that, it was the notion that there were all these other people out there that always stuck with me. And I think I'm in the weird, rare minority in that, in that regard. Um, but I, yeah, I, sadly, I think, but I, I think it does sound, seem like that's a major, a minority opinion to say, look at all the people, even though a lot of us remember meeting significant proportions of our friend groups, you know, never in person. Right. right. I, still, I, mean, I, I still have friends I've made, you know, I've had for decades now that I've never met in person um, that, you know, I've, I've always interacted with online and we've had you know, long running important friendships that are mediated only by this technology, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. But so back, back, kind of circling back around from uh, childhood nostalgia, um, which, right. by the way, have you have you have you watched um, Stranger Things? I have not. Oh, God. OK. I don't, I don't much do horror. I'm sorry. It's not that horror. Okay, we'll have another. We can't take all of the all of the podcast on Stranger Things and me trying to convince you it's not a horror show because I hate horror too. So, anyways, I'll send you oh, another email okay. about that. Um, okay, <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so, so jumping back. So there's this pushback, right? And I feel like it's because the whole hacker community is used to thinking in terms of everything is zero sum, everything is attack or defense. Um, because most people came to security in one way or another with an attack story. Mm-hmm. So saying. There's this other thing besides what you red teamers do that fixes most problems can sound to a lot of people like an attack. It sounds like me saying, you know, what you do is valueless and we shouldn't worry about red teaming. Instead, we should just all do compliance. That's not what it means. And we've spent so long as an industry being attacked that it feels like every change is an attack on the industry as itself, right? This is the big concern. Every time a new state legislature takes up the in, in, like information security, as it sounds like New York is doing or as California is doing, everyone's like, oh, my God, no, you have to stay away from us, right? Like, mm-hmm. we, we are the only people good enough to judge this, which isn't very helpful, right? But because we've all kind of grown up as an industry of saying, well, the security people are all bad at first, right? Those are all those dirty hackers. And then now, well, the security people are super good and they're super important. And then moving to a third model of the security people are one component of large functional organization feels like it's the death of something important. And it doesn't have to be. You've used the term in in our conversations, um, security as a monoculture. Yes. And this is exactly my issue, right? Every time we react to somebody who's not like us, you know, they're a legislature or they just weren't a self-taught tube-fed hacker prodigy, there's this 
damaging response, right? And I, I attend a lot of conferences. I use conferences in particular to keep myself sane while I went to law school. And I hear over and over again, variations on a theme of we only want to hire people who eat binaries and excrete shells. Uh. And so if you weren't hacking from three years old, don't bother to apply, right? We only hire real experts. That's a pretty damaging thing, right? Is everyone else actually useless? We're aware as a culture how bad a monoculture can be, right? If you look at like Blaster back in the day or Brian Krebs last week, uh, yeah. both problems are because everyone on the planet is running the same cruddy software with the same cruddy bug. And on the same day, we turned the Internet of Things into the Internet of Things that attack Brian Krebs's website. Um, because we have essentially this monoculture, right? Because we have old, unpatched busy box everywhere. And to be clear, I'm just guessing on what the IoT vulnerability is. A lot of them have been variations on the theme of its old unpatched busy box, right? So we know that monocultures are problematic, right? We know this from biology too, right? Every time, you know, every 30 years we wipe out all the bananas and have to switch to a new strain of bananas because there's there's a banana attacking uh, disease that hurts them and we destroy them because they're a monoculture. But in our own security community though, we're terrible about this. We tend to hire people only who grew up hacking all the things. And there are some groups who hire only people who have computer science, like master's degrees, right? And there are other groups who only hire people who have no college degrees because, man, education (laughs) kills your mind, man. And I feel like this is common because it's hard. The work we do every day is hard. It's hard enough without having to explain things to people who don't have your same set of cultural references. And so, you know, if you're used to every, you know, everyone in at the like everyone at DEF CON, I brought a new person to DEF CON this year. And before I brought her, I was like, you have to watch hackers because everyone <laughs> else at DEF CON has watched hackers and literally nothing there will make any sense unless you've seen this movie. That's this, insane, like, by the way. Yeah, but it's true. Just, I, you know, I mean, like half the jokes literally make no sense. So we rely on having the same kind of set of experiences and we say, well, basically, we're so important that we can't be bothered trying to explain ourselves. And when we do that, we lose on all the other valuable experience, right? We lose the work of people who came to security from, I just met a young woman a few months ago who came to security having done a like triple major undergraduate in international relations, Chinese language, and Farsi. Like, she's amazing. Right. That's an amazing thing. Right. I know a very famous InfoSec person who has a PhD or almost a PhD in game theory. Right. And she does amazing work in security. Oh, I love the right. almost a PhDs. Um, right. Exactly. Yeah, the ha- ABD. I'm, I'm a happy member of that club. So there you go. Exactly. Um, so uh, these people bring valuable and different perspectives. But this response is, well, it's hard to talk to people who aren't like me because they don't get my movie references or mm-hmm. because they don't read, you know, they don't read machine code. Right. And so, you know, yeah, there are people at my company who are unbelievable reverse engineer masters. And I am not. I scraped through the couple assembly classes I had to take in college and happily walked away from all that forever. And when I work with them, I have to remember that they do not want to understand everything I do about the law. And they have to remember that I do not wish to know everything they know about reverse engineering. And when we work together and can kind of say, OK, let's take let's let's kind of Voltron our resources, right? Like, let's take all these small pieces and put them together. We do amazing work together, but we have to move beyond. I don't want to work hard enough to translate that. Because when we say, well, I don't care about those issues because it seems like they're not related. What they're really saying is I don't want to work to understand people. And so then it becomes it's too hard to work to fix it. And it becomes it's too hard to work to take people who weren't, you know, hacking since three or even more damagingly. It becomes it's too hard to hire people who don't look exactly like us. And that's pretty horrifying, right? You end up with 
not to put too fine a point on it, an entire industry full of straight white males. Yep. Which means we don't serve the rest of the world, right? Because the rest of the world isn't this one small monoculture. It's everybody. And security is in service to larger goals, right? Security can't be its own thing. That's the kind of compliance destroys everything idea, right? You have the auditor comes in and says, I want all of my plain text passwords because I am the highest good. But that's not what we do, right? We need to inculcate a culture of like security as a service to the larger goals of our culture and of our world. And we don't get to do that if it's this one tiny small group of people who every time someone brings up, hey, do you know that there are these other ideas, right? Like that there is international relations or there is there are people who speak other languages treat it as an attack, right? Security has to stop being zero sum. The other thing is, right, if it was just, if if the things that were getting built today were were like the things that were getting built a long, long time ago with computers, one might be able to say that a certain set of people could understand that and and, and have the knowledge of it to take care of those things, but that is not the case anymore. I mean, we always go back to the internet of unpatchable things, but I mean, the very nature that so much software is built now on open source means you can't understand how it is all built anymore. And nobody would have the time or the mental, you know, acrobatics or or possibly the domain knowledge to be able to say, I understand all of this. And therefore, I am smart enough about this. And therefore, I can do this and protect this all like it's it's not possible. Right. There's actually a brilliant example of that I saw a few weeks ago. Um, Someone on GitHub decided to answer once and for all the old favorite, I think, Google-derived interview question of what happens when you type Google.com into a browser and hit enter. And and they're taking pull requests, everybody, so go find this. And they start all the way from, like, what does, you know, how is the mechanical force of your finger on the key translated into electrical signals? And how does it cause hardware interrupts? And you know, then they split off into, well, back in the AT days, keyboards worked like this. And now in the USB days, they were like this. And then, you know, how are signals encoded into fiber optics and the entire, I mean, everything, the entire list of domain-specific knowledges. And it's hundreds of pages long by the time you figure out how to pull up a web page. Mm-hmm. That's kind of amazing, right? Yep. It is too big. It is this cathedral we have to build. And we need to build it with people who do other things, right? I am, you know, okay at computer things. I am okay-ish at law type things. I am terrible, but enjoying a lot, but destroying a lot of wood at woodworking things. And that's kind of it, right? But in order to build a computer, I need people who are electrical engineers. I need people who understand plastics formation. I know people who understand supply chains, all of these things. And we did this for all of technology. This is how technology has always worked. But InfoSec is ripping itself apart trying to stay the same and trying to look like it feels like back in the 80s. And it's killing us. What do you think? So you're going to be talking about this, too, at our at our news. I mean, what's what do you see as one way through or other w- ways through this? There probably isn't one way through this. Well, well yeah. So at O'Reilly um, Security, I'm going to be talking about a the security as service thing mediated through this old Peel's principles of policing idea, which I think is a kind of fun way to do security work. But it's very much about the how do we work with a larger organization in a way that makes them feel like we're all on the same team? Because security people are bad at this, just in general. In terms of how to fix this larger issue, however, the best thing I've figured out how to do is just find people who want to get into information security, who aren't like me, right? Who aren't like any of us. Maybe they look different, maybe they have a different educational background, or they just grew up in a very, you know, they grew up on the wrong side of town or whatever. 
and understand why they want to do security, which for almost everyone I've talked to, it, it isn't just, I like to break this thing, right? But it's specifically, I see this thing in my world that wants to be secure or that needs to be secure, right? I want to protect people. I want to help people. I want to find out what that story is and then figure out, given your group, your colleagues, your friend group of security people, whatever, what this person has that is different that no one else has in your group. And just go through that exercise. Say, okay, well, if we hired them or if we brought them into our friend group, what would change about us, right? What would become better? What new things could we do, right? And that's a very, on the one hand, that's a kind of exploitative way to approach it, right? People are more than just what they can bring to your group. But I think the mental exercise of what don't we have because this new cool person isn't with us yet yeah. is, is helpful to kind of understand, you know, what are all these backgrounds, right? Then help them. Hire them if you can, right? There are tons of cool new security people. I was at DEF CON this year, and there were a ton of security people I met who desperately need jobs, which is funny because there's also a ton of security people who are saying, I can't hire anyone. Yeah, I've heard I've like heard we, this is a problem. There's, because, there are, and it's, it's because we require, you know, there was a great post last week, we require zero to two years of experience and a CISSP. <laughs> well, which is odd because those of you who have a CISSP know that it takes five years of experience. But there's, again, we, we need to reach out to bring these other people in, right? People who are doing international relations and have, you know, have this kind of minor in computer science or a friend of mine who has a music performance degree mm -hmm. and a minor in computer science. And he's fond of saying, yeah, well, guess which one of those actually pays the bills. Um, <laughs> I was, and, I was talking to someone from Google. I was talking to someone from Google very much about this, not, not on the security side, but as somebody who is works on the um on the the side of sort of their site reliability uh they're the people who try to keep everything from going down um all the right. time and uh and they have a very specific kind of job title it's a site reliability engineer they like to hire software engineers into that particular job role but he was saying to me that the his his, his favorite people which are harder to find um are liberal arts majors yep. uh, now i'm i i, I nodded along with him during this because that that reflects a very particular bias i have um and i'm a card carrying liberal arts major so i might have a very strong bias in that department um but his point was that a lot of the skills they need to teach these people that are more on the engineering side are teachable um a couple of years it sounds like and the other stuff is much harder to teach and, and he talked about used words in terms of like creativity um you know sort of an excitement about you know problems and trying to figure those problems out and not just like technical problems but you know gnarly people socio-technical problems um and so I, you know the, these are people who are trying to keep the internet from going down and that i, I right. thought that was really interesting yes absolutely um it's i mean when i do interviews i tend to lead people you know i have colleagues who can do deep dive technical stuff and i can but it's not as much fun i tend to take people just through deep threat modeling exercises and it turns out that whether they know those words or not, right, whether they've, you know, they've done the, you know, Microsoft SDL Pro approved stride methodology or whatever, people usually understand the concept of there are many different ways to hurt this system, right, any large system. And going through all of that teaches them a lot of what we actually do on a day to day basis, right? Then there's technical stuff. But it turns out that if you can say, well, you know, how do we make it so that you can't deliver tables anymore, if you're a table deliver company, and you know, look at all the different things that go into a large, you know, manufacturing enterprise or a large supply chain, they start to understand how we do security work, right? How do we attack systems that are working? And then we could teach the reverse engineering they need, or we can teach the network security. What we can't teach is the kind of curiosity in the studying of systems. And that can come out of, yes, liberal arts majors. It can even occasionally come out of lawyers, though. What? Uh, not often. I know it's weird, right? I know. Um, 
Law actually has a monoculture of liberal arts majors, which is quite funny. Uh, yes. I, I was the diverse person as an engineer, which was weird. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was actually talking to somebody about about that, about how the, the the I was at a school where the obvious natural next thing was grad school, not law, like, like academia. But that w- that was a very common phenomenon amongst my my liberal arts uh, other friends, other schools out of that time. Was it was like, well, I guess I got to go get a law degree now. Oh, yep. Unfortunate, I think. But yeah. Well, it makes this problem. There was just a Washington Post article in the last few days about government lawyers don't understand tech and it's causing all these horrifying problems, particularly in criminal law in that article, right? Yeah. You, have, yeah. you know, saying, well, you know, you must have done this because your computer says this. Well, that's not what the computer says. The computer never says intent, right? That's a, that's a rare thing for a computer. What it probably says is ephemera. And how do we produce that ephemera? And that's an important thing. The law also has this monoculture problem. It's yeah. actually farther along in addressing that than InfoSec is in addressing its problem. So and basically what you're saying is, is the cultural problems of, of security are are worse than that of law? Is that? I would say that, the <laughs> no, not, not that. Law has a bunch of other problems, which are terrified. We can get into that over some other time. But the information security community is very new, but has, you know, compared to like law, right? We've, you know, or like corporations or whatever, but we have been thrust into a position of incredible importance. And power. And, is, and, and power, absolutely. So it's not okay to say, well, it's too hard to fix the monoculture, so we're not going to bother. That can't be the answer because it destroys our efficacy and we don't have time to wait to save the world. Mm. We have to fix everything right now because it's <laughs> like because everything is on fire right i think that's pretty obvious just read the news yeah we don't have the ability to wait and say well in 300 years security people will be trusted advisors um as opposed to you know people who would be unemployable if they didn't have this incredibly small niche talent we so, can't allow that we can't allow ourselves to be dick like to be perceived as the people who go and drink too much in Las Vegas and are jerks to people who don't look like us. That can't be the way we are because that's not most security people. Yeah. But allowing those people to dominate the conversation means that the entire industry is taken less seriously and is less able to solve the problems that the world faces. So you, you've you led right into my favorite closing question because I think um, once you've said everything is on fire, I don't have any really other good follow-up questions. Um, but this one, which is... You know, we we talked a bit about the whole hero uh, metaphor, and that's not really what I'm after here. I'm not after the one person who you know comes in and works eighty hour weeks and saves a day. Um, but but the notion that when you say we have to fix this and um and and we have to to think of this in terms of 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 safety and criticality and protecting things, I do believe that everybody has a secret superpower. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to know what yours is. God, you know, most of the time in my teammates it's the secret superpower of actually reading the regulations (laughs) which you know sounds terrible but i will tell you uh two years ago at our company christmas party we had a white elephant bug exchange right like find the worst bug you can and then hand it that's like a white elephant gift exchange oh that's horrible remind me not to work with you yeah it was it was it was funny but i actually found a bug in the seattle parking code um and i won't reveal what it was because like it's you know tacky to, to drop oday on the security podcast but I actually found a bug and it's like, actually, I think you could fight this um, on this particular type of thing that was affecting a lot of people in our office, right? It affected a parking lot near the office. And no one had ever, you know, they, they'd say, oh, man, you know, that parking person has it out for me. No one ever sat down and actually read the parking code and realized that it had a, basically a bug in it and analyzed it from that way. So in this group of people, it's that, right? When I hang out with my lawyer friends, it's 
all sorts of different things, right? I, I work on an ABA information security committee, and I have other talents there, and none of them are the law talents. So, so yours is uh, you you you're good at finding the hidden text or the things that other people don't see. I analyze text as systems, and I find that text has the same bugs that other things do. This is actually what the Ethereum exchange found out. They're like, we're going to have uh, code be our contracts, and that's going to be amazing because we'll know exactly what the contract says. And then they found out that the cool thing about contracts is that they have debuggers called lawyers, and that if you cut all the lawyers out, sometimes <laughs> you have a bug and you lose $55 million, which was amusing to me, right? Um, <laughs> well, people like, yeah, use, people uh, usually often use different metaphors for lawyers and physical creatures but you you know you could go with bugs that well debuggers not just debuggers, bugs, right, right. yes, Debug, right? yes. We, we have a purpose it's a positive metaphor it is it is no i thought yeah that one is a yeah as opposed to the other i won't even mention metaphors and animals and lawyers thank you so much <laughs> all right well um i think we're going to wrap on that and thank you so much for joining me and i'm looking forward to seeing you at the um o'reilly security conference soon in new york awesome thank you so much for having me Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Courtney Nash and Brendan is at U-S-S-J-O-I-N. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Mm-hmm.